Good morning, pastors and ministry leaders. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Nigerian Pastors Podcast. My name is Shegun Ayegusi, and I am a pastor and founder and director of the Gathering Faith Leadership Network. We are a pastoral training ministry in the city of Jos in Plato State, Nigeria, and our mission is to encourage, equip, and strengthen pastors and ministry leaders. The Nigerian Pastors Podcast is the audio ministry of the Gathering Faith Leadership Network, and we aim to achieve two goals through this podcast. One, we want to minister to the pastor's heart and stir up in you a greater love for Jesus Christ. The fact is, when a pastor is in awe and in love with Jesus Christ, it will result in emotionally and spiritually healthy ministry leaders who lead thriving churches. And our second goal through this podcast is to equip you with practical biblical teaching for ministry so that you can grow in your knowledge of God's Word and become more effective in preaching and teaching through the Bible. It is our ongoing prayer that the Holy Spirit of God accomplishes both of these goals in your life as you listen along. Welcome again, and thank you for listening. Welcome to part two of our Christmas podcast series about the unexpected characters in the story of Christmas. So in today's episode, we are looking at one of the kings, uh, one of the kings mentioned in the Christmas story. No, not not King Jesus and, and not even the wise men, but rather today in this podcast, we are looking at this curious character named King Herod. Uh, before I tell you about King Herod, let me let me set up the story by sharing some of my own personal experiences. Um, I remember when I was growing up, you know, during Christmas time. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, Christmas plays were a always a big deal, whether in school or in church. And every kid on my block wanted to play the important roles in the Christmas story, right? Like most of the girls wanted to play Mary or one of the angels or one of the midwives even though they're not really in the story, but, but, uh, and even the boys wanted to play either Joseph or one of the wise men or an angel. <laughs> it's funny because nobody ever wanted to play the role of Judas. In fact, the teachers would sometimes, or the person in church would sometimes attach or assign the role of Judas um, to someone who was doing something wrong. Anyway, you know, it's funny, even as a parent, uh, during Christmas, when my kids come back from school and they tell me that their teacher or that they're having a Christmas program this year and that their teacher has assigned them to play the role of a shepherd or a sheep, I find myself getting angry at the teacher because, you know, I wanted my son to play a more important character. Well, several years ago, um, when I was back in the United States, I was offered the role in a church drama that I did not really want, but apparently I was the right man for the job. Um, I was asked to play the role of one of Pontius Pilate's henchmen, and my role in that drama was basically to beat Jesus up as one of the people who arrested Jesus. And so I was like, you know what? I am going to, I'm going to give this an Oscar-winning performance. Like, I really threw myself and committed to the role. And uh, so I did. And so during one of the key moments in the play, I mean, imagine a packed state, uh, packed church building. People are watching. And during one of the key moments of the play, when we were arresting Jesus and, you know, we were pretending to beat him up, I was so into my role that I actually accidentally punched Jesus in the face. I mean, like, really hard. And you could almost hear the audience go, like, you could hear a gasp through the audience. And I, the funny thing, I wasn't even aware that I had punched Jesus because I was so into my performance and I thought I was trying to help people see the real story. 
Well, after the play, when you know when people usually come to greet the actors, I noticed that nobody, nobody, people were trying to avoid me. Like nobody came to, and I didn't quite understand it at the moment. But later on, obviously, I found that why, and I began to really notice that. In fact, some people wouldn't even make eye contact with me, and ultimately, I figured it out why. I figured out why, and and it made me more curious about many of those side characters in the story of Christmas, or the co-stars of the story of Christmas. So in last week's episode, we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Well, like I said, I made it a point to look more deeply into the life of some of the more unlikable characters. So Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, those are the likable characters in the story of Christmas. Well, I wanted to study the lives of those people who are not very likable in Christmas, starting with the man that we're looking at today in um, today's sermon, King Herod. And uh, King Herod, his story is actually in the second chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And there are some very important lessons that you and I can learn from this really bad man. Lessons that teach us a lot about how God accomplishes his will even when evil people try to obstruct his path. Now, remember, we're doing this series as a way to really bless pastors, but also as a way to provide you pastors with some biblical content that you can make into your own and teach to your church during Christmas in case you're lacking some ideas. Um, In fact, so let, let me give you the central idea, the big idea that will flow out of today's passage in Matthew chapter two, as we look at King Herod's life. Here's the big idea. Even when all paths appear blocked, God always provides and prepares a way. Can I get an amen? Like even when all paths ahead of you appear to be blocked, God is in the habit of providing and preparing an alternate way. All right, let's jump right in. Matthew chapter two, I'm gonna read the first six verses. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, that's where he's going to be born, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You know, um, I always find it interesting that the very shepherds of Israel who should have known the timing of the arrival of the Messiah were completely oblivious to it. Yet it was outsiders, men from the east, who actually came seeking the Messiah. Well, uh, like I said, it's not about that. Let's actually jump in and talk about King Herod, okay? Because when I said King Herod, your mind probably went to different Herods in the Bible. There's There are at least two or three Herods in the Gospels and one more Herod in the uh, Epistles. And so uh, the Herod that we are talking about is the Herod the Great. He's known as Herod the Great. He's the one who's at the beginning of the Gospels. He's actually one of the first, he is the first Herod we meet in the New Testament. And uh, he's the one who's going to kill the babies later on, which I'll talk about in a second. But 
Just so you know a little bit about this man, Herod was born 73 years before the birth of Christ in a place called Southern Judea. And he was born into a family of military commanders. So he comes from a family of wealth and influence. In fact, um, they were an influential and a powerful family because they were masters. His family were masters at the political game. They remained in authority for so long because they always sided with whoever was in power at any given time, especially the Romans. In fact, Herod himself, making Herod the Great, made a name for himself by brutally suppressing any rebellion and sedition around Jerusalem, and he was always backed by the military might of the Romans. In fact, the Roman Senate actually thought that Herod was so valuable to them that they awarded him the title of King of the Jews, even though he wasn't really a Jew, nor was he from the kingly line of David. But he basically became what's known as a client ruler whom Rome used to control their territory. So that's where some of King Herod's power and influence comes from. Now, history remembers King Herod as an architectural genius. I mean, this guy was a builder. Herod actually accomplished a lot in his lifetime. He, he perfected the use of hydraulic concrete and built many theaters. He built palaces. He built cities, including what's known as the harbor and the city of Caesarea Maritima. And, and he was also responsible for building the second temple in Jerusalem because he was trying to get favor. He was trying to curry favor and loyalty from the Jewish leaders. So he, he was a very accomplished man. Make no mistake about that. However, history also shows that King Herod was a paranoid tyrant, like he had an evil side to him that sometimes was on full display. In fact, some accounts suggest that as he got older, he became even more mentally unstable and, and paranoid. Later, history shows that he actually murdered his own wife, several of his sons, and other close relatives that he was suspicious of. Like I said, King Herod was a paranoid man and an evil man. And so it's in the middle of all of this craziness that Matthew chapter 2 tells us that King Herod receives news that a new king has been born. Not just any king, but a king who is so important that wise men have traveled all the way from the east to come worship him. I mean, like, talk about making a crazy man even crazier. So now he has this insecurity to battle with. All right, before we get to Herod, let me, let me give you a little background on these wise men, because I, I think that is important to this story, because they, their story intersects with King Herod's story. These wise men were also known as magi. And, and these wise men from the east would have been from what was known as the Parthian kingdom and would likely have been very familiar with Old Testament prophecies through their interactions with Jews who were in captivity in Babylon many, many years ago. You see, about six centuries earlier, before Matthew chapter 2, six centuries earlier, the Bible tells us that Babylon had invaded Israel and took a bunch of people from Israel to Babylon, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And, and if you remember that story, Daniel, Shadrach, uh, and, and the two other guys were, were basically um, assimilated into into Babylonian culture, and, and Daniel ends up rising to a position of power and influence, and, and Daniel wrote extensively about the future days, about the coming of the Messiah in the book of 
Daniel. Well, these wise men were from the same Babylon, the Parthian kingdom that Daniel was. And so, in fact, Daniel was actually known as a Magi, which is the same title these wise men have. And so it's very possible that these Magi's were students of history. They had read the things Daniel had written. They knew that Daniel prophesied that a Messiah was coming. So the Magi's were powerful, influential, highly educated men. They were students of philosophy astrology, which is the study of the skies, the moons, and the stars. They were they studied dream interpretation and just the general pursuit of wisdom. And in God's wisdom, or in God's sovereign wisdom, God had chosen to guide this group of magis in their day, guide them through their study of the supernatural phenomenons in the sky, where they someday spotted this star in the sky, or maybe it was an angelic being, we don't know, but they spotted this star in the sky, and God providentially led them as the star moved and led them to exactly where Jesus would be born. Now, tradition tells us that there were three wise men. The truth, though, is that we actually don't know how many wise men there were that came to worship Jesus. All we know is that when the Magi came into town, because of who they were, because of how prominent and powerful and influential they were, when they came into town, they would have been traveling with a large number of attendants, and their their escort would have included a military escort. Remember. The Parthian kingdom was a powerful empire, so their wealth, their prestige, their power would have would have meant that it was a big group of people coming into town. I mean, talk about like it's I guess it's this closest thing like if, you know, Joe Biden were to show up in, you know, Joss, you know, in Lagos, like you come with a big entourage and that kind of entourage will catch people's attention, especially the attention of King Herod. And the reason why that they would have especially caught King Herod's attention is because one of the duties or one of the tasks of a magi is that they were king makers. Uh, they were known as being influential and in the selection and recognition of kings because of their wisdom and their knowledge. And, and so with all of this background, hopefully you're starting to get an idea of why it is Herod would have been scared out of his living daylights when all of a sudden these men come into town and they're asking. Where's the king who's been born? Remember, Herod is unstable mentally. He's very insecure, and he is threatened by the thought that this baby king might someday come and take his position. That's why Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. I think Herod was troubled because he was afraid this king would replace him, and I think all of Jerusalem was troubled because they know Herod is a crazy man, and he's being threatened. And so Herod recognizes that these wise men represent a lot of firepower, right? So, so he has to be careful. He can't just arrest them. He has to be careful about how he acquires information about who this baby boy is. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7 to 18. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star that they were following had appeared. Verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's lying, right? This is a lie. Because, in fact, there's probably a murderous plot forming in his mind at this point. Verse 9 says, After listening to the king, the Magi went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, the Magi offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. And so Joseph rose and took Jesus, baby Jesus, and Mary, the mother, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked, or at least he thought he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years and under. Can you imagine such craziness? Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. For Rachel, Rachel is a matriarch of the Jewish faith, weeping for her children she refused to be comforted because they are no more. All right, <laughs> let's work our way through this passage because this is one of the more ugly and bloody aspects of the Christmas story, right? Now, before we get into it, let, let me, let's talk real quick about the response of the wise men to Jesus. Because once again, I think all of this ties in together. These wise men showing up at where Moses, uh, Joseph and Mary were, this is, I was thinking about this and I thought for the wise men to have shown up where they did, when they did, it's kind of like if a group of very rich Saudi Arabian princes and, you know, Russian billionaire oligarchs, if all of a sudden they were to fly to Nigeria and all of these, you know, in their limousines and Jeeps and whatever, they were all to, you know, drive up to someplace in Tudunwada to come worship a little boy who's been born. That's how shocking it was. Like, like, the, like everyone knows something is happening, right? You could see how that would be very intimidating for Governor Lalong or even President Buhari. Like, wait, what are these powerful men doing here? Well, these men, once again, are VIPs who have shown up with gifts for dignitary. And they bring to Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And each of these gifts are actually symbolic in nature. Gold is a gift that's reserved for royalty, which makes sense because Jesus is going to be known as the king of kings. And also, very practically speaking, this gold was a great blessing to Joseph and Mary because remember, God just told them, pack your bags and travel to Egypt. They're going to need money to travel and they're going to need money to take care of baby Jesus. So we see, we don't talk about this, but God actually thought ahead and provided for Mary and Joseph finances they would need to raise Jesus for however long, but also to travel. The second gift these men brought is frankincense. And frankincense is what priests burn in the temple during worship. And the smoke from the frankincense represents our prayers rising up to God in heaven like a, like a sweet aroma or a sweet incense in God's nose. And so Jesus, we know, is going to pray, 
play a priestly role. He's going to be our intercessor before God the Father. And so this frankincense is symbolic of his priestly role, whereas gold is symbolic of his kingly role. And then, of course, there's myrrh, right? Myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H, is sort of a weird gift because myrrh is an, is an aromatic resin that you use to prepare a dead body for burial. So, you know, 2,000 years later, we look back and it makes sense to us, but at the time that they gave it to Jesus, it, doesn't, it wouldn't have made sense. But remember, this was a prophetic gift, so to speak, because Jesus would be a king, even though he was still a baby. Jesus would be our priest, even though he was still a baby. And the myrrh represents the death that he would die on our behalf to reconcile us back to God. And so these men, these wise men, these magi represent what the right response is to Jesus. I tell you the story of the wise men because it gives us a contrast for how we are to respond. Like the way the wise men responded to Jesus is the way we're supposed to respond, not the way King Herod responds. The wise men respond to Jesus with worship and gifts. Herod responds to Jesus by fear and threats and death. You see the difference there? The right response to God is worship and the surrendering of our hearts. And in this, or at least the way that God provides for baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph, we see this big idea that when all paths appear blocked, it seems like this is going to be the end of Jesus. It seems like Herod's going to kill the son of God, yet God provides a way of escape. And that brings us to our big idea. When all paths appear blocked, God always provides and prepares a way. Well, that's the wise man. Unfortunately, we've got to come back to this man, Herod. Um, and because once Herod realizes that the wise men have, they, you know, they've caught onto his evil scheme and they've gone away, the this madman goes ballistic and basically unleashes murder and death on every home with a child two years old or under. Verse 16 says, Herod became furious. In fact, the word there for furious indicates that he, he lost it. Like he became blinded by rage. Remember, he's mentally unstable, so much so that he sends his soldiers to kill every little toddler in that town. And in response, verse 18 says, a voice was heard in Ramah. Like Rachel is one of the wife of the patriarchs of Israel, and she represents every Jewish mother who was crying on that day. Rachel's crying is the cry of every parent and every family who has ever lost a child at birth. Rachel crying, weeping is the is the is represents the crying of every child's life that was taken before their life. Yet, even in this darkness, God was working. Like, I don't want to minimize the awfulness of that day. But God ensured that the newborn baby Jesus escaped on that day because one day, 33 years later, he would indeed need to die for the, to pave a way for mankind to be saved. You see, had baby Jesus been killed on that day, then there'd be no hope. But in God's mercy, he made a way for us. Now, the irony is that even though Mary and Joseph escaped the death of their child on that day, like I said, 33 years later, on another afternoon, Mary, the mother of Jesus, would experience the same heartache, the same pain that all those mothers experienced in Bethlehem as she watched her son be pierced and die on the cross. You know, I hate to call this next part. So we've talked about Herod, we've talked about how evil it was, all that happened on that faithful day. And I hate to call this next part good news, but but if you are human, at this point in the story, you're feeling a strong sense of injustice, right? Like we just want Herod to 
be judged like, right? How dare he kill so many children because of his insecurity? So let me share with you what happens to Herod, right? We know he dies because the Bible says he eventually dies. Um, to find out a little bit about him, we have to look at Jewish history a little bit. In the classic account of Jewish history written by a man, a historian called Flavius Josephus, he writes a history of Jewish history called Antiquities. And in there, Josephus tells us that King Herod eventually died of an ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, that neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. What history is telling us is that this man didn't just die, but he died an awful death. Basically, it sounds like worms ate him from within before he died. Now, I got to tell you, I know the Bible says God takes no delight and no pleasure in the death of the wicked and would rather have them turn from their evil ways. But when I read how King Herod died, I got to be honest with you, I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with that. I think Herod needs to go. You know what? As disgusting, as repulsing as his death was, it is nothing compared to what Herod experienced or is going to or did experience in the fires of hell in an eternity separated from God because he refused to welcome Jesus in his life as his King and Lord. It is not necessarily sin that separates us from God. Yes, I mean, don't get me wrong, it is sin. But what separates us from God and what damns us to hell is our rejection of Jesus Christ. There's no one who's in Christ who doesn't have sin. We all have that. And yes, sin has separated us. But when we turn to faith in Christ, we are, we are taken from death to life. We are restored into a right relationship with God. And what damns people to eternity is when they do what Herod did, not only rejecting Jesus Christ, but slamming the door shut on any opportunities to trust in him. This is the unfortunate biblical reality for anyone today who blatantly refuses to trust in Jesus Christ as the only one who can make them right with God. So, if there is one concluding lesson we've learned from this story about Herod, it's this, that even when it seems that evil is prevailing, and even when it looks like all paths appear blocked, God always provides and prepares the way. Even though it came at the cost of many babies dying, who, by the way, Scripture tells us that they are safe in the arms of God because they're not even at an age of accountability. Like we have every reason to believe, especially when we look in the story of David when his baby dies, we have every reason to believe that when children die, children who are under the age of accountability, that the common grace of God covers them because they're not at that point to understand their need for grace. So those babies, though they suffered a violent death, are safely in the arms of God. And even though baby Jesus' life was threatened, God allowed him to live. God allowed him to escape the trial so that we would someday have hope. My friends, that is the story of God. God's greatest act of preparation and provision was the sending of his son and the sacrifice of his son on the cross so that by trusting in him and believing in him in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we would be saved. So I leave you with that question today as we wrap up this podcast. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? The Bible says if you confess your sin, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. I pray that on your own you stand, you come before God in prayer and surrender your hearts to him so you may spend eternity with him. I pray you a Merry Christmas, and I pray that this message blesses you and your congregation.
Thanks again for listening to the Nigerian Pastors Podcast. For more information about our ministry, uh, you could visit our website, www.thegatheringfaithleadership.network. We are a pastoral training ministry in the city of Jos, Plateau State, Nigeria, and our mission is to encourage, equip, and strengthen pastors and ministry leaders. If you enjoyed this week's podcast and were blessed by it, there are one of two ways you can be a blessing to us in return. One, you can subscribe to our podcast on whatever streaming platform you're listening to us and leave an encouraging review and give us some great stars uh, telling us how much you enjoyed our podcast. That would mean a lot to us. And then two, you can actually visit the episode page of this week's podcast and share it on any of your social media platforms, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, wherever, and let your friends know about us. We truly appreciate you and hope you were blessed by this. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you up with you next week. Stay close to Christ.